In today's episode, we speak with Joe Gordon, VP of Innovation at Veronex. We discuss the dynamic landscape of medtech, what makes a valuable external partner, and dig into my annoyance with the term human-centered design. I think the key that the client needs to bring is really that information around the business model. What is the value proposition? Welcome to Beyond Innovation, a series that breaks down the mystique, explores what works, what doesn't, and what innovation really means with experts who live it every day. So my name is Joe Gordon. I'm the Vice President of Innovation at Veronex. Still a little foreign to say Veronex. This is actually a new change. Uh, I forever have said Zymedica. It was actually a 19-year tenure at Zymedica. Uh, Veronex is now a new organization that actually purchased iMedica and has done a series of acquisitions to really kind of round out a complete holistic healthcare solution. And Veronex is, so, so the company iMedica got acquired when? Ooh, Not the first time, the second time. Yeah, less than a year ago, less than a year ago. So we're talking about six months ago. Okay, so this is, this is new. Yeah, it's new. It's new. And, and like anything, they, they were focused on doing these acquisitions. So we were actually the very first acquisition. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And yeah, in the, basically the product design and engineering sector, okay. or business unit. And then they've since purchased companies in the regulatory space, market access, uh, and then really clinical trial support, really a large um, company called Cortesian that over 600 employees that basically did software development, advanced analytics, um, really a lot of that back-end data um, processing for the clinical trial work. And so are all these companies then thought of as service providers to the medical device industry? Is that sort of the, the, the way that this is being rounded out within, within the new within the new organization? Yeah, it's a good question. So when Zymedica, we got used to saying, hey, we're end to end because right. we did design and user needs identification right up through being able to do manufacturing in a regulated medical space. Uh, a little naive to have said end to end at that point because yeah. it's really been enlightening to when you think about market access. So one of the acquisitions was Boston Health Associates that does a lot of the work of just what's the potential market size? What's the reimbursement code? The real fundamentals you should really understand if you're embarking on developing a medical product. Right. Um, they're also very involved in the back end. So if you're getting close to approvals and you actually want to get your reimbursement and you're doing more of the business end of how you get paid and who the payers are, um, they really bookend that that process. But that's not something we did historically. Right. But we're something we're aware of. But usually our client represented that or we'd made recommendations for our client to seek that type of counsel. Yeah. Um, we had regulatory before, but it was a very small department. Now we brought a company in the regulatory space. It's a yeah. large company, and it really, really increased our capacity in that, that realm. And, and a lot of the, even the clinical trials, like I'm excited to have sat in a meeting recently with a major medical company, and they were giving us the opportunity to bid on their entire portfolio in a new space. That's cool. PMA approval, but this was design through the actual clinical trials wow. and monitoring those clinical trials. We're talking two, four, six-year follow-ups. Wow. And we were there and we had all the right parties in the room at the table that were speaking to the capabilities of from the design to the really even the conversations and the no, no, knowledge and know-how of navigating the FDA for PMA and how to structure those clinicals. So can you just for just for the the audience can you um, define PMA? Yeah, that's a good one. So <laughs> medical space is, is acronym heavy. Yes, very heavy, yeah. <laughs> so long story short, it's the new thing. Okay. So it's pre-market approval is basically at 510K is the 
the normal way of going through the FDA process. And that really is based on predicates. So there's a reference technology that you're able to compare yourself to. Um, The pre-market approval is a recognition there's nothing like it. Uh, So it's a much heavier clinical burden. Uh, It's only about 3% of the products that get approved each year in the FDA that are this PMA submission. So it is significantly different than the 510K pathway. Um, The FDA is really pushing more of them, actually. I mean, they, they recognize, yeah, they have to, to. exactly. They have to stay current. The, the real paradigm shifts in medical development is where, where the real breakthroughs exist. And that's how you truly impact patients and and really make a difference. Yeah. It's funny because the medical industry, because of the way the regulatory process is built, oftentimes is, uh, incremental in its development because it's so difficult to not be incremental. You always have to land on somebody else's back a little bit to say, yep. okay, somebody did this and now I'm doing this plus, and then I can drive it through the, through the, the regulatory process more smoothly. Whereas if you're net new, fully net new, that is a, that's a big lift. Yep. And, and I know we haven't, we don't, we don't, we don't get in into that because that, that, that requires a whole sure world that, that, that we certainly don't have. Yeah. I mean, I've been in the space for over 20 years and most of that career was, was not anywhere not near there. Yeah. It was, it was kind of the, Oh, Whoa, yeah. <laughs> that's PMA, like no way. And, yeah. um, that's changed. And yeah. I, I think it's changed around the same time the FDA was too. Yeah. I mean, they're recognizing you need new novel things. So they made that less intimidating. Uh, the FDA became much more appropriate. So it wasn't this, you do all your work and then you walk in the room with your fingers crossed. Um, a lot of these mm-hmm. early meetings with them for that guidance to make sure that they're they're helping you to develop the right thing and, and to take the right actions in terms of what sort of preclinical you can do and what that path would look like. Because especially if you're a startup company, that the, the raises and the funding is so important. And you want to make sure that those milestones are in line with the FDA's needs, but then in line with the different funding milestones for you as an organization to be successful. Got it. So let's just talk a little bit about this relationship between you as a service provider and now a bigger, more complex service provider. Cause yep. I mean, you and I worked together in the very early days of Zymedica when we called ourselves end to end and yep. did not have a regulatory affairs group. That's right? a good point. That's funny. Right? I think every company I've worked with, I've always said end to end, end, to end. every it company keeps getting bigger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, end to end is definable, right? You can be end to end in a narrow range. You can still call yourself end to end. Right. So in the medical device industry, in the medical technology space, end-to-end is true. End-to-end is really, really big yes, in comparison is. to lots of other categories. And and back when Zymatica was getting off the ground, we were end-to-end, and what we did is we designed stuff, yep. and then we handed it to somebody else, and we like went, okay, that's that's the end right. of the end. And now, and then over time, you know, we we grew and we Pushed grew, and then and I left, and you guys grew and grew and grew even further, and now it sounds like it's taken this very big step. Yep. So let's let's just talk a little bit about the relationship between you as the service provider and the technology expert and the regulatory expert and the customer who comes in the door and and is seeking those services and sort of what makes for successful relationships, and then as importantly, what makes for less successful relationships. Yep. I, in a word, partnership. Yeah. So the, the, the trusted advisor, the books out there, there's, there's a lot of good kind of experiences around that. But that's really what we seek is, is a partnership. Medical device development's hard. It's yeah. not a straight line. There's going to be challenges, findings, 
failures mm -hmm. that you need to overcome. And if it's a relationship where they say, tell us what it's going to cost and let us know when you're successful, that's not what we want. Right. I mean, ultimately, we want a partnership. We write proposals. We write project plans. They're well-intentioned. They're based in experience. But once again, it's not a straight line. No. The, the, we can put a certain amount of effort into something or anticipate a certain amount of effort, and then we're going to need to shift some focus there. So um, the best relationships, the clients are in the mix. We start to have some of these challenges. They're part of the decision-making process of how we actually overcome those challenges. Oftentimes, we're able to within the same scope, just say, hey, you know what, this is actually proving to be a lot more difficult. We're going to do another iteration and we're going to focus some more attention on bringing in some people over there. But you know what, we, we had this other thing in the work scope. And if we don't do that as part of this work scope, it's really not going to affect your critical right. program goals. So that's, we're going to repurpose those funds. But it's preemptive. I mean, that's, that's what we owe to them as a partnership is we actually involve them in that decision making. That course correction is part of it. The scenarios, hey, we could do one or B. Maybe, maybe they do want to increase the funds and still do that other thing. Right. And so maybe the funds is the most important to them. The time is most important to them. Yeah. And I think at, at least in the way that we end up in these scenarios, like you learn that as you go, those relationships evolve over time. And in the beginning, you're kind of feeling one another out. And yep. then over time, you start to learn like, okay, what's most important to you is X. Yep. And, and, and so as you, as you uh, give us a sense of like the cadence of this kind of communication, if you're saying like they're, they're a part of that, medical device world is notorious for taking a very, very long time to deliver stuff to market. So what's the cadence of this interaction between you and a customer over the course of a, of a, of a given relationship? So it, it depends, yeah, which is course. a standard answer yeah. and everything, right? Um, complexity, what the client dynamic is on their end. Yeah. We have startups where the project we're working on it's their life. Yeah. It's the only project they're working on. So the, the level of communication there is likely to be higher. But we've also had startups that were almost virtual. Yeah. And maybe there's just a, a CEO and maybe a marketing person, but they really don't have the technical know-how or, or knowledge. Um, if that's the instance, we kind of cater that communication. And we can be not necessarily as technical in that, that correspondence, uh, but being sensitive, we have a marketing guy and we have a business guy. Right. So we're going to communicate a lot of information about how we're doing in those those two elements, but then also keep them updated on just our findings. But it's a difference between information transfer for keeping them up to speed or a dialogue where we really want interaction and, and feedback and guidance from them right. as our partner. And that And that relationship is what sort of evolves where you start to learn like, okay, you have a good expertise and a good knowledge base in this area. We need you more. Yep. And over here, we're going to lean. We're going to lean on our own expertise and our own knowledge. Don't worry about this. So exactly. Much. Yeah. Yep. And that 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 balance definitely takes some time to. Uh, it takes time to adjust to, and give us give us yep. give us okay without giving away any secrets or putting anybody into a bad spot. Give us like a real world scenario of something that didn't go as you wanted it to because of this sort of communication relationship. Do you have anything off the top of your head that you could imagine like getting I'll, into? I'll, I'll pivot for a second. So yeah. I think one of the key tools that we use yeah. is prioritizing business criteria. So every, all our processes stem out of best practices, yeah. right? And learning some of the scar tissue. Um, but basically we're a consultancy and we always have a client. 
And we need to be in tune with our clients' value proposition, what's their major drivers. So as part of our kickoff process, I'll say for every one of our programs, we create a list of what we think from the knowledge and interactions we've had so far are the main program drivers. Um, and we'll take a stab at that. And then in the kickoff, we'll actually say, hey, this is what we think it is. Are we missing anything? Right. Let's adjust some of these definitions and, and push it back and forth before we start the activity. Um, and this can be time to market. This is what's your sensitivity around development cost or development timeframes. Um, we need to understand ultimately what's their market entry point. Are they a fast follower or, or do they want a me too product or are they looking to really have the ultimate use? Sure. And they're going to market and sell based on ultimate use experience. So we want to make sure we have some program driver around that primary goal. Um, there's cost to answer and a whole bunch of other ones. But the point is we cater that list to them. And then in the kickoff, we go through a pairwise comparison where we say, all right, here's the time. Like what's more important to you, your cost per procedure or your time to answer, which is really common in a diagnostics program. And hmm. if we did a good job, they struggle. If we do a good job, the marketing guy is saying, no, 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 wait a minute. Yeah. We really need that. And then the engineer is saying, but no, I mean, that's, that's going to take a lot more and that's going to delay our, right. our market. And sometimes you just sit back and then watch them debate. <laughs> and if they're debating in front of you, that means they weren't aligned. And right. that means they wouldn't have been able to give you good information. That means now you know, hey, if that marketing guy is not in the dashboard call that week, we got to be really careful because they yeah. disagree mm -hmm. and we need to make sure we either follow up or transfer that information. So it's just such an important kind of transition and kind of a calibration, I'll call it, yeah. um, for how we then make our decisions on our client's best interest. Yeah, that's interesting because in the, we don't focus in the medical device world, whereas you guys do, but that same conversation purveys every single project, right? Yep. You have people who are stakeholders who are not aligned. And it sounds like you guys have a good way to expose that to the team at the beginning, yep. which if there's problems, it's when that gets exposed six months, a year, two years down the line and having that documentation for lack of a better term and that mechanism is, is super valuable. It is. It and, really is. And uh, I mean, in the, in, in your world, you guys end up with copious amounts of documentation. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> and so how does that layer in? Does that then become a requirements document or are we still in sort of, design inputs and theoreticals at that stage. So how does that transition work? Yeah, it, I, I like that you said that even though you're not medical, that's still applicable. And, yeah. and that's really the thing here. So no, that's not part of the formal quality management system. Uh, the FDA wouldn't care that we went through that activity. Ah, okay. um, so this is really, it's a much more of a consultant tool yeah. than it is a medical device development tool. Got it. Okay, that's good. I mean, that just, that, that just sort of, you know, we talk about this a lot and Aiden Petrie, who's the founder of Zymedica, was on, on who, who obviously started very far from medical and then moved into medical. And I feel like that's, that's something that um, sometimes industries look at themselves as a little bit of a snowflake. Like we do it this way because we're in this industry. And what we have found being a little more generic in the services that we deliver is that there's so much commonality across problem solving. And in the medical device industry, that problem solving strategy is fundamentally the same as yep. it is to, to, to design these glasses. The difference is you have a process that's dictated to you that's different and a little more um, robust yep. to manage that risk. So right. um, 
That's... I think the activities are commensurate with the risk. Totally. So even within the medical device, there's low-risk devices that you can you can reduce some of that, and and yeah. you can impart a little bit more risk than you would if if there was higher severity or higher risk associated with what huh. could go wrong. Right. That's so a, that's it's scalable. Yeah, that's a totally good distinction to make too, because I think there's there's oftentimes this veil of of um, complexity that goes over the medical industry, when in fact it is a, it is a sliding scale. Yeah. And 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 the and the process is built to allow for that sliding scale of risk. Um, okay. So as we as we talk about innovation as at sort of this high level. Give us a sense of this, again, coming back to this relationship between a customer and you guys of sort of the role of the customer innovation versus the role of the service provider innovation. So the analogy that we were talking about before that we came on was like, you don't oftentimes have a surgeon come in and say, I'd like to do a surgical procedure. Can you guys please do that? Right. Sort of with nothing behind it. It typically starts with, I think I can do this better. I have this particular way of doing it, or I have this idea, but I can't build it all out. So give us, give us sort of how you see that relationship between what shows up from the customer and then what you guys can, can then do with that versus when that isn't, isn't sort of situated quite as, as clearly. Yeah. So some of my favorite programs are when they come in and there's not a prescriptive solution. And there really is just a fundamental need yeah. that they want us to both investigate the, the user needs as well as the technical options that ultimately could satisfy that need. Right. Um, so personally, I embrace that white space. Um, I think the key that the client needs to bring is really that information around the business model. What is the value proposition, right? Are, are they looking to, to develop a technology and, and sell it as fast as possible? Or is this the beginning of a platform technology that they're going to grow into their own company, right? And that, that should guide our processes. That should guide what we're doing in terms of how we approach the user needs identification, how we approach the actual technical solutions. Mm. And um, we shouldn't be going and inventing new materials if ultimately getting to through filing and through approval as fast as possible is really their value proposition. So we do want to make sure that they have that. And and they don't always. Right. We we have started programs and then over over uh, like uncovered really big gaps in their value proposition. Right. They just didn't have enough know how of what it was, reimbursement codes, and ultimately how you the payers are involved. These are critical elements that can really they can they can derail. They can tank a company with the best product out there, the right. best idea. Mm. But if there's not a market for it or a way to ultimately get it in use within an environment. You're not going to be successful. Right. And so that that insight that comes with that sounds to me a little bit like you're reliant on a customer to support the strategy side fundamentally, yeah. right? Because that strategy side then leads to all these other pieces that you're talking about. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the lack of strategy probably begins to expose some of these holes where you start to say, okay, well, Who's buying this? Exactly. Yep. The <laughs> like, business strategy like, part. Yep. Who's buying this? And I mean, yep. product strategy too, because it's both, they're both interrelated, right? Like, so if you're going to start with an object that then becomes a platform that then becomes a series of platforms, you're going to do something differently than if right. you're going to say, no, it's a, it's a singular solution, uh, that we're then going to try to scale 
yeah. in some other way. Yeah. So that that's interesting because I had I certainly hadn't thought about it in those terms where like that's what you're relying, but it's it's the same for us. It's yep. the same notion of like relying on a customer to come in with a clear strategy, even if they haven't figured everything out. And that strategy can change over time, but it's gotta it's gotta it's gotta be some foundational strategy when you walk in the door, which is which is uh challenging sometimes. Yep. So I want to I want to change the topic a little bit because I have this uh, slight I don't want to call it an annoyance but I will it borders on annoyance <laughs> which is the lingo that we use in our industry which we've both been in for our entire careers yep starts to throw around terms that um, become slightly ill defined and the one that I want to pick on is human centered design because I think that it, it merits like actual definition. Like what are we actually talking about? Because we all communicate this. Every group that's in the world of putting um, products to market talks about a human centered approach or human centered design. So yep. let me kick it to you first. And then we'll sort of bat that back and forth about what human centered design actually is. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, the way that we've defined it, or at least I've always embraced it is considering user needs, technology, and business. And right back to those business drivers I was talking about, Sandy Check, did we represent all three? Yep. Um, I, I think all three need to be part of every execution strategy too. So it's also kind of a check and balance. Are we, do we have the right ones? Um, I spent a lot of time on my career in the earlier phase, the real concept generation, the product definition part of that, right? And You're a machine. <laughs> <laughs> a machine. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, what, I'm, my counterparts I've had on the user research and the design sides, I mean, especially with the research, I, Elizabeth LaRoche, who worked at Zymedica for mm, years, yeah. she, we always joked that, are you going first or am I going first? Yeah. And that was really a testament to... Do they understand the user needs? Do they understand the use environment well enough that we can pick up that ball and start to generate solutions? Right. And if the answer was no, it's, all right, you're going first. Right. Go get those needs. Let's get some of that definition so that when we generate concepts, they're relevant. And that's always something I take a lot of pride in. Mm -hmm. We don't just jump in and then start drawing stuff. Like, that's not what we do. Right. We want to make sure that we have enough of that understanding and there's enough definition that when it actually is pen to paper, we're confident that this is going to be a relevant contender of and, that idea. And do you feel like as you navigate customer sort of interactions that customers come in knowing that that's a part of the process or do you think that that piece is a surprise to them? I guess it goes to what level they know it because yeah. at the end of the day, it's pretty common sense. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it really is. And it's been exploited. And then, it, as you said, it's kind of an annoyance because I think people abuse it and yeah. they'll brag that they know it. But so many of these things are just rooted in common sense. I agree. Yeah. Um, where, where it is enlightening is where they come in and there's huge gaps. Yeah. There really is. And, and that, that's where we kind of go into the education moment of it. And, and we don't say... Hey, time out. We're going to have a user-centered moment, <laughs> but we can lead them to water, if you will. And yeah. we just kind of structure it of, okay, yeah. we have a good understanding of this and this, but let's talk about the other part. Right. Um, because we don't think that these are at equal planes. And that's really the critical part. If you're going on that journey, just making sure you're always keeping those three facets in, in check. Yeah, I, I think I'm in 100% alignment that you have this three-legged stool. And without one of the legs, the whole stool falls over. Yep. And 
and f- we've rebranded good design into human centered design. We've rebranded good business practice into human centered design. But the reality is they all are reliant on those three pillars being well understood. I think the, uh, the last piece of that, if I were to add a fourth business strategy being one, but sort of market fit as a, as a actual idea where you're coming in and you're saying, okay, I'm satisfying a genuine unmet need. Yep. And that unmet need has a, has a business model behind it because without that, this is hard, this hard world to live in. Right. And, and, um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think it is interesting to, to sort of hear your take on human centered design because I, you see it, every agency puts it on their website. Right. And, and, uh, but I don't hear it defined like you just did. And that clear, that sort of clarity of definition, I think would be nice if all of us put it on all of our websites. Well, let me personalize it. Right. So it was, was it 15 years ago that you and I were working in the same company? Yeah. yeah, 15. So a long time ago. And if you looked at the way we were executing those programs, it was very much in line with that. Yeah. But I don't have any recollection of us calling it. We that. didn't use that word. We no. didn't use that term, right? No. And it was kind of enlightening to me, where like all of a sudden somebody was describing it, and like, oh, well, do you follow a human-centered yeah. design? And I was like, I think, I think so. so. Let me look yeah. it up. Yeah. I'm like, well, yeah, that's what we yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> somebody yeah. branded this. Yeah, we we just re, we rebrand. I mean, we put it in with design thinking is another rebranded version of problem solving. Human-centered design is another version of rebranding the strategy for making sure that what comes out at the end, right. a human wants. Yep. Right. Which is different than maybe some other industries where you're, you don't have to worry about that, where you're trying to design an automation system to go into a manufacturing cell. You're not trying to do human centered design. You need it to fit with scatter, you know, rules. Yep. So, so yeah, I had the same, I had the same sort of, uh, epiphany where somebody handed it to me and I'm like, yeah, this is like, this is the process, right? This is just, this is what we've been doing for like (laughs) 25 years more. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's funny to like hear your, we've, we're now old enough where we're going to hear the rebranding of the same ideas, uh, travel through our, our lives, which oh, is yeah. a little, I don't know how I feel about it. I'm not that psyched about it. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Cause you're annoyed. <laughs> I'm a little annoyed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the medical technologies fields are changing. They're changing really fast in the last two years. They've changed. I'm going to say as fast as I can imagine them changing in the history of the time that I've been working in them, they've evolved more quickly. Yep. So give us the sense of where you see all of this heading. Cause you're in a position where you're, you're a leading indicator. You're in the leading edge of all this sort of give us a sense of how you see this, where you see this traveling to what you see coming. Um, as we, as we move from, where we were, I'll say pre-COVID to where we're going post-COVID. Yeah, it's interesting. And the the man, there's a bunch of different ways to to answer that. So I I think one major one that we're we're seeing more and more of is just the pressures around funding R and D. So within major medical, there is less and less R and D funds available. Uh, and you still see on the news these huge acquisitions, right? So it's not that the money doesn't exist, um, but there's much more of a willingness, as I perceive it, that you can actually acquire a company, especially one that's actually gone through and got approval, uh, got that a- FDA approval. Now they can sell that medical device. Um, that makes a company much more valuable. 
And the justification for these major medicals, they can actually really justify spending a lot of money because that's a known entity. So when you say a, a decrease in R&D funding, you're talking about with the, with the big players. Yeah, with the big players. Okay. So there's usually some percentage that goes into R&D from their P&L. That's starting to get squeezed more and more. And it's moving toward acquisition. It's moving towards acquisitions, mm. yeah. And and there is just different ways of structuring it as well, too. So we're starting to, to see some unique funding opportunities where you can actually do some of the development. And we, we still aren't embracing doing our own products, but now we can actually do more of the, the development kind of independent or in parallel with some of these companies. And then it's more of um, different funding, different ways to fund it. But. So are you seeing this shift to smaller entities? I mean, the money's still in the system, right? So is that money moving to smaller entities, to more startup entities from an R&D perspective? Or what's ha what's happening there? Well, the way I was just describing it, as you, 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 you understood it, right? It was the major ones that yeah. are really having this struggle. Um, the mid-tier players, I don't see as much of a change in that regard, although um, we have been able to come more, maybe it's our size, I'm not sure, in the way that we're able to interact with these companies, but doing more of a portfolio approach, or we can become their R&D partner, and it's not this one single project that we do for them. It's more of, we're going to really understand what you do, we're going to share some of that content expertise that you have as an organization, but we're going to be able to be your R&D entity and your product development entity in a much more substantial way, but also a more efficient way because we are kind of building that knowledge and know-how. So they're allowed to have their small, a smaller R&D group on theirs and really leverage the flexibility of using ours as needed. It's not that different than where consumer brands have gone. I mean, consumer brands used to carry huge R&D payrolls, yep. and, and a lot of consumer brands have transitioned to basically being marketing, sales, and strategy companies. Yep. And then they just outsource R&D to, in, in the case of consumer brands, a lot of that goes overseas. Some of it stays in, in, in these shores. But it sounds like the, the, the medical technology businesses are transitioning into that sort of space, which is, which is interesting. Yeah, and I think, the, I think it's been happening for a long time, and it just I think it's even trending further and further that way. And, and it makes sense. I mean, yeah. the product life cycles of a medical device are much longer. Yeah. So if you get really creative individuals that are problem solvers and really thrive in that entity, but you're developing one product, two products, you're doing more sustaining engineering – that's not going to have an individual like that thrive within that organization. And then you have this opportunity to tap into organizations like us that, that have a pool of those people right. and can deploy them as needed. Um, so it, 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 I see why it happened, and I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's funny. I, uh, I went onto a website of a client whom I won't name that I worked on in 2004, 2005, and I was horrified to see... <laughs> The exact same, not just the same product, the yep. same photo of the same product that went on the internet in 2004 was still on this, on this company's website. Yep. And they outsourced that engineering to us at the time. Sure. And, uh, there would be nothing to do, right? There would be no R and D. They're yeah. just trying to grow the market for the product that they've created. And, uh, I did it two days ago. It's like. See, that's almost funny to me because I think I might even know a project you're talking about. And I had a sense of pride. <laughs> like, I, we, we, we have it in our office. And I was kind of like, oh, look at that. 
Yeah. And it's still the same. Yeah. And I was embracing, I was celebrating the fact that this still has, it's still a viable product. They showcase it on their website. Yeah. So it's true. I mean, that, that mindset in this industry is very different where it's yeah. like, we, you're, you're, you're intentionally building in longevity. You're intentionally trying to make the product last, which is ultimately a good idea. Right. Right. It's yep. not, it's not, it, it, it has limitations cause it, cause you don't get to take advantage of new advancements in technologies, but it's reliable. It does its job. Yeah. It's safe. It's, it's, uh, it's built market fit. So you can sell it, carry on, you know, sometimes I think we're overly interested in adaptive change for, right. You know, for what, like, is it really valuable to the customer? Yep. Well, that's, that is, that's probably one of the more tangible examples of the difference between the healthcare and medical space as opposed to the consumer space. Right. There's different pressures. Like the consumer space is under pressure to be cutting edge and, and to, to renew itself and be modern and current. I don't think the medical space has those same pressures. They're much more around the safety and effectiveness of it. And if there's not really a change or, an, or a need because of a new disease state, then they just keep buying the same thing. So in the, in the, you know, in the world that we're all surviving through where we are seeing pretty quick adaption in the types of therapies that are being produced specifically around COVID-19. Yep. Has that started to sort of trickle into the world that you see, or are those still staying relatively separate? When elaborate on your question, I mean, mind. philosophically, you know, we put, multiple vaccines on the market in a shorter time frame than has ever been done before. Yep. We put multiple uh drug therapies on the market in a in a time frame that we've never done before. Are you starting to feel that pressure of speed sort of um drift into into the world that you live in, which is not pharmaceuticals. It's yep. it's it's applied, it's devices. Sure. Yeah, we, we actually do spend a decent amount of time in drug delivery systems. Yeah. Um, usually we are the delivery system, and right. then our client is doing the actual drug formulation of that. So it's it's interesting. I think there's some misconceptions there in terms of some of the speeds, and there's certainly some headlines that are out mm. there in terms of what's happening. Yeah. Um, if you really look at the nuts and bolts of how fast some of those things happened, it it wasn't. It certainly wasn't order of magnitude different, and really? it was still the same process that needed to be followed. And the EUA was was established. I, I didn't. When you were talking to Aiden, I know that you guys had brought that up, and I think he gave the advice: don't do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, that's good advice because yeah. the FDA didn't throw away the rule book. Right. They were still people holding people accountable to following the process. Um, there was a little bit more leeway there if you were able to rationalize or justify the kind of the risk benefit of that. But at the end of the day, they didn't make too many concessions. Hmm. So that's definitely not in the public mind. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they did a bad job of marketing that. <laughs> well, it's like anything. I think they, they, they celebrate and you can kind of spin, spin the kind of the successes under certain lights. Yeah. Um, but now, at the end of the day, those those processes, they're actually, they're well-founded and they haven't changed too much. I think the biggest change is what I was referring to earlier of the approachability and more right. of the FDA acting as a partner and a dynamic entity and, and both parties want the product to be successful. And that, that then adds 
that speeds things up. It does. Because you're not making mistakes in your application process because they're helping you with your application you got process. It. You got yeah, it. That, that, that's a, I mean, over my career, that's a huge shift. Yep. Cause when we first started doing this, there was a fear <laughs> right. that, that was palatable in approaching the FDA when you were ready to do so. And the amount of time spent to try to do that once was enormous. Yep. And so that, that feels like actually quite a large shift right. in the way that we've, we've sort of begun to approach regulation and, and, and new ideas. Yep. And that is a shift. I mean, it, for, it was forever. Never, you don't want to be in their, in their line of sight. If you're in the line of sight, that's a bad thing. Interesting. Um, and, and that really is what has changed. It, it's it, now it is much more of a reality. You should embrace the fact that you're getting this communication because it increases your likelihood of being successful. And, that's a better way to do it. It is a better, That's way, a better to way to do it. Because the, the other one is you'd cross your fingers and yeah. slide it in and then hope you hope hope you just get that approval right. letter back. And that's a tough way to run a business that's, too. Yeah, I would agree. So so if you're giving I'm gonna throw a little curveball at you. If you're giving advice to young people entering this space, I just got out of a couple of meetings with a very young founder who's got a very, very good idea. Give us a sense of like what you would tell them based on all these years of experience that you have in this to get them to the door of a company like yours in a way that sets them up to be successful, assuming they have the funding and assuming they've got the, the, the sort of clinical side sorted out. Yeah. But, but what, what's sort of the, what, when you see people come to the door, what do you really need from them so that they can set themselves up to be successful with a company like yours? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'll, I'll, I'll actually give Aiden some credit here, too. He referenced a questionnaire that they've developed at NEMIC, and it's a good one. It, it has a lot mm. of the nuts and bolts. Once again, it's all common sense, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, are you solving a problem that needs to be solved? Can you get paid for this? Have you thought about a reimbursement model? intellectual property and, and, and patents. Um, so there's, there's a list of like 20, just I'll call them considerations and yeah. you need to consider them all. But at the end of the day, it's not that hard, right? It, it's, it's, it's a questionnaire you could fill out very quickly. And I think it opens your eyes to all the different facets of it. So it's a balance between striking the right level of fear that yeah, medical device is harder than doing a consumer product. Yeah, sure. But it's like anything. If, if you do your homework and you, you think holistically and you answer those questions before you act, it allows you to prioritize your activities. You can spend the money in the right way. You can make sure that there's something success, successful at the end of that path um, so you're not just wasting your time or money. That's, that's, I think that's that sort of uh, pre-planning is something that, at least what we see doesn't, it doesn't happen as often as it probably should. Yep. And it just means you're then trying to extract that information from them instead of them coming to the door, having that sort of on the table saying, this is what I know. This is what I don't know. Right. And this is where I'm looking for some support is so different than just like, I know what I need. Come give it to me. Yep. It's funny. You put that under the guides of a, of a fresh brand new engineer out of school it's actually how we deal with all our clients. And I'm not saying we treat them like kids. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, as soon as they walk in the door, it's a scavenger hunt to be like, all right, what problem are they trying to solve? Yeah. 
Is it a technical challenge? Is it a user one? Where, what's their starting point? What's their foundation? Yeah. Have they thought about all the elements I was just describing? Because um, if they haven't, that's where we start to, to get that listing established. And that's how we're able to prioritize that list. And that ends up being our proposal. Yeah. And sometimes you need a third party to help you. It's hard to self-assess. Yep. It's hard to walk into those saying, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. Right. And sometimes you need that sounding board to say, okay, tell me if you think I know what I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that, that's a, that's a, that's sometimes an uncomfortable position to be in, but we all need it. Like yep. we need it for ourselves just as much as our customers need it uh, from us. Yeah. I have, um, I have done a fist pump underneath the table when I've asked a question and then the client went, oh, uh, all right. And so you kind of hit the soft spot yeah. and either they knew it and they're like, oh, man, they got to that soft spot quick. Yeah. But it's a good way of getting credibility. It's a good way of actually ultimately getting off on the right foot and really showing that you have value to them. Yeah. It's just anticipating where they're going to have challenges or risk and being able to communicate that to them. I mean, ultimately, that's the value that you bring is that you've seen so many versions of this story and through that experience you can spot the whole pretty quickly yep and then be able to, and then good customers as i see them quickly come around to the notion that yep we got to solve that problem right yep instead of like no we got it yep you know and and that that's that's a that's a sometimes a challenging conversation yep it's an educational moment for coworkers too, especially when we have new people that maybe haven't worked in a consultancy a environment and the client doesn't always ask for the right thing. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a little bit sobering to some people when you're like, when the client asks you for something and then you're basically coming back with something different. But as long as that's defensible and mm -hmm. they feel like you're acting in their best interest, then that's the conversation you want to have. Yeah. Cause that, yeah, I agree. That makes for the best relationships. Right. Exactly. Where they go, oh, this is great because I didn't know to ask that. Right. Um, that, that, that's excellent. That's that partnership word that we were touching on yeah. earlier. I mean, I think a lot of this, you know, this industry comes down to trust and that trust gets built over time and asking those good questions helps build that trust. And then being able to demonstrate that you can deliver on whatever expectations they have or didn't even know that they had right. really, really drives this home. Yep. It's, it's uh, okay. This was great. Uh, it's fun to go. So as you, you know, Aiden, well, I know Aiden, well, yep. he was on uh, a couple of episodes ago. So we're recording this for three weeks after I spoke to Aiden. And it's so fascinating to hear you echo so much of the conversation that I had with him, but from a completely different point of view, because yep. he lived in the executive space for the entire time that, that, that Zymedica was being built. Whereas you've lived at a different layer in the organization for a period of time and have a little more uh, experience with the tangible needs of a particular project. And that, and that, uh, this was fun. I, I, I like that. Fun. Good catching up. Yeah. It's good <laughs> to see you. Uh, so, um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, um, what's your LinkedIn and can they just DM you directly and ask questions? So absolutely. <laughs> I, I enjoy that actually. Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn is a great way to get in touch with me. So it's, um, Joe Gordon and it's still under Medical. I'll change that to Veronex soon. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that, that's the best way to get in contact with me. And, uh, I'll certainly make any attempt to answer any questions that come my way. Cool. All right. Well, this is great. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Appreciate right. it.